Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. Good morning. It's Wednesday, January 31st. The war in the Middle East is now 117 days old. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research and Foundation for Defense of Democracies, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. I'm just back from a quick trip to San Antonio, Texas, where I had the opportunity to brief Christian supporters of Israel about the latest in the region. For me, after COVID, there is still nothing better than an in-person speech but I'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that the FDD morning brief is a close second. I hope you agree. In a few minutes, I'll be joined by FDD CEO, Mark Dubowitz. I have known Mark for more than 20 years now, hard to believe, and I've worked with him for I think 14 of those years. Here's the thing about him. He's a one-man wrecking ball when it comes to the Islamic Republic of Iran. Through his sanctions ideas that the US government has implemented, he's done billions of dollars of damage to the regime's economy over the years. He'll talk to us about what to expect from the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. But before we talk to Mark, we need to talk about the Biden administration's response, or maybe it's non-response, to the Iran-backed militia that killed three of our warfighters in Jordan and injured some two dozen more. We all know what happened. Kataib Hezbollah, an arm of Iran based in Iraq, sent a drone to attack our base in Jordan. The base is called Tower 22. As it turns out, an American drone that was on a mission was returning to base right at the time that the Iranian drone arrived. This was the confusion that led to the, the successful attack. We have gone days now without a response. More on that in a second, but let's take note of what happened when the administration vowed to respond. First, the Iranian regime declared that it did not want a war with the United States. It was a fairly sniveling statement, all things considered, more importantly, it showed that the very threat of American force could push the regime to back down. The second statement we saw was just as interesting. Kataib Hezbollah announced that it was suspending operations against America. Once again, the credible threat of force prevails. It makes you wonder why we didn't threaten these terrorists and their sponsors more often. But here's one more wrinkle. Yesterday, Arabic media were circulating a statement from an advisor to the Iraqi prime minister stating that the suspension of Kataib Hezbollah attacks was tied to ongoing discussions between the U.S. and Baghdad over a possible U.S. withdrawal from the country. That's either face-saving or a deeply troubling collapse of American foreign policy. The good news? It appears that, it, that Iran and its proxies have determined that fighting America may not be worth it, at least for now. Maybe. The bad news? The U.S. has not backed up its words with deeds. The regime and its proxies have gone days without paying a price for that attack in Jordan. Let's hope this is about U.S. intelligence gathering and not allowing Iran to literally get away with murder. There is a chance, by the way, that after this episode, the Iranian axis may simply focus its fire on Israel to avoid provoking America. But that would not mean the absence of war. It would simply signal a different war. Widening attacks against Israel from Iraq and Syria could spark the dangerous multi-front conflict that we all have sought to avoid. What's next? Unclear, but we'll keep watching and we'll report back. Now for your headlines. Headline one, Israel's Channel 11 reports that the Palestinian Authority is now undertaking a series of reforms. You heard that right. Mahmoud Abbas, the octogenarian autocrat, 
now 19 years into his four-year term, has announced that his government is going to get its act together. This is all part of the U.S.-led effort to reinstall the Palestinian Authority in Gaza when the war ends. From there, the goal will be to push everyone back to that old elusive construct, the two-state solution. Call me a skeptic, but this is just not happening. Abbas is barely the mayor of Ramallah. His government cannot project power. He is truly hated by his own people, and his government is not only feckless, it is irredeemably corrupt. Abbas's son, Yasser, yes, he was named after Yasser Arafat, actually sued me and Foreign Policy Magazine about a decade ago for exposing that corruption. Don't worry, I prevailed, but the lesson there, it was an important one. Just because you don't like what I say doesn't mean it's not true. Headline two, the IDF spent special forces into the West Bank dressed as medical staff, doctors, etc., killing three militants in a hospital in Janine. It was just like the show Fauda. Around a dozen commandos disguised as nurses, women dressed in hijabs, and other disguises were captured on CCTV cameras. And from what we know about the operation, they got their targets. But one of the strangest headlines I've seen about this raid came from ABC News saying that the raid was a war crime. The media insanity continues. In the meantime, I'll just say this. Keep watching the West Bank, folks. My colleagues and I were watching the West Bank well before the Gaza war kicked off, and we're going to continue to track it. The Israelis have killed upwards of 400 fighters in the West Bank since October 7th. They have arrested some 3,000 suspects, too. That means there's a lot of bad things happening there, even if we don't hear about it every day. Oh, and keep your eye on March 11th. That's when Ramadan begins, and that's usually when stuff really goes sideways in the West Bank. Let's hope it doesn't. And headline three, talks continue toward a possible second hostage deal between Israel and Hamas. Hamas leaders are now headed to Cairo, and from what we hear, some progress has been made. Both sides seem to understand that they won't get everything that they want. Hamas would likely get a month of pause and fighting, probably not more. The Israelis won't leave the Gaza Strip either, because doing so would allow Hamas to regroup. Israel would get another couple of dozen hostages returned, but not all of them, and Hamas would get a number of its prisoners released from jail, but not thousands. Let me just say this. If a deal gets done, keep an eye on the northern border. The last time around, Hezbollah stopped firing while the Gaza ceasefire held. But during that time, Hezbollah's elite Radwan forces were able to establish positions closer to Israel's border. The Israelis will not allow that to happen again. So that begs this question. If the fighting continues in Lebanon when the guns fall silent in Gaza, is that the beginning of the Lebanon war? We'll be watching. I'm now pleased to introduce you to FTD's chief executive officer, Mark Dubowitz. He's one of the best minds you're ever going to hear on Iran. I might also add that he's not a morning person, but he has made a special exception to join us today. And so we're thrilled to have him on the program. Welcome, Mark. And nice shirt you got on there. Thanks, John. Yeah, it's a great shirt. It was uh, sent to me by a colleague. I love wearing it because it either triggers people or uh, I get a lot of praise and a lot of folks saying, where'd you get that great shirt? So yeah, FCK Hamas, John. Good way to start the morning. It's good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Let me let me start by getting our audience here up to speed. The regime hates you and, and they hate FTD. They've sanctioned you. They've sanctioned us. What have we done to deserve this? Well, John, for 20 years, we've been working on the issue. Um, and through the Bush administration, Obama, Trump, and now Biden, uh, the team at FDD has been working on ways to try to provide 
maximum support to the Iranian people, the majority of whom despise this regime, and put maximum pressure on the Islamic Republic. And we spent a lot of time working on economic and financial warfare, uh, sanctions, designations, to try and deny this regime the hundreds of billions of dollars that it seeks in order to fund its illicit nuclear weapons program, its deadly proxies, and prop up this hated Islamic Republic. So in return, this regime is very conspiratorial and, and claims that FDD is the uh, designing and executing arm of the U.S. government on Iran policy. That's, it's a nice badge of honor, quite exaggerated, but certainly we've been very focused and very determined to bring down this Islamic Republic and replace it with a government that is free and prosperous and is no longer a threat to its own people and to the people of the Middle East and, and to Americans here at home. Well, you know, I'm on board with that. All right, let me let me ask you about this. Iran's role in the latest war, um, and of course, this is the latest war. It's an ongoing war, if you if you want to really describe it properly. But it, in your estimation, was the regime directly involved in 10-7? And then I think more broadly, is the regime restraining Hezbollah? Is the regime directing those proxies in Iraq and Syria? We're not getting um, really clear directives right now from the U.S. government. Yeah, John, I mean, you know this. If you want to understand what's going on in the Middle East, you have to understand the, the mind of the mullah. And in this case, Iran's supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, who is the most deadly, uh, determined, and I would say devious dictator in, uh, in the Middle East, maybe in the world. And he has been orchestrating a ring of fire, a strategy of surrounding Israel on every border with deadly proxies. Uh, he's been training them, financing them, weaponizing them and obviously inciting and providing ideological support to them. So yeah, short answer is yes. I mean, they absolutely are not only complicit in what happened on 10-7, but they were training, financing, and weaponizing Hamas exactly for this. There were multiple meetings between the IRGC, Quds Force, Hezbollah, Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, in the weeks and months before 10-7. And I don't think at those meetings, they, you know, they were discussing uh, their favorite uh, coffee flavor or or breakfast food. I mean, they were absolutely planning this. Now, did they know exactly when it would happen? Uh, maybe not. I think they gave Hamas certain operational flexibility to decide when it would happen. But uh, the blood is on Khamenei's hands. And he is playing a role not only in supporting Hamas, but as you said, in uh, providing huge amount of military support and financial support, as you've detailed over the years, John, to Hezbollah in Lebanon. And they are playing a role right now in both restraining Hezbollah for now, um, but also providing Hezbollah with the tens of thousands of missiles, including the most deadly precision guided munitions to unleash on Israel at a time of su the Supreme Leader's choosing. Well, obviously that needs to be countered and that leads me to the next question, which is what is the economic war plan that America needs to adopt against the regime right now? I am not gonna suggest that the Biden administration is gonna do everything that we think is needed, but. What do you think is actually needed right now? What would be effective against the regime? Well, what's needed is to go back to the economic warfare plan of the Bush, Obama, and Trump administrations, which really inflicted severe economic damage on the Islamic Republic, right? As John, as you know, we've been monitoring this very closely. I mean, at one point, the foreign exchange reserves of the Islamic Republic were over $120 billion. The Trump administration drove that down to less than $4 billion, right? Oil sales were two and a half million barrels a day. Trump administration drove that down to about 100,000 to 200,000 barrels a day. The regime's currency had collapsed. Inflation was 40, 50 percent. 
it's that's a good thing when you're weakening your enemy and you're making the enemy decide between guns and butter, right? Either guns for terrorists or butter for their people. And at the height of the maximum pressure campaign, the regime was reeling, the economy was collapsing, and Joe Biden came in and rescued them. He's given them tens of billions of dollars in additional oil sales, in access to $16 billion of, of foreign exchange money, and uh, the regime has recovered. The economy, the GDP growth of the Islamic Republic over the past three years under Biden has exceeded the GDP growth of, of the United States of America. So when they've got that much more economic oxygen, they don't have to make those painful choices between guns and butter, and they can fund their deadly proxies like Hamas, Hezbollah, and the Houthis. What's needed is a return to maximum pressure, and I would say as well, a, a strategy of maximum support for the Iranian people. We'll get to that in a minute, but let me just actually ask you to dig down a little bit, because you know when we talk about providing sanctions relief to the regime, we're doing this in exchange for something, right? Or at least theoretically we are. This administration is trying to get back into the 2015 nuclear deal. How dangerous would that be right now? Well, I mean, the problem is, is, is first of all, they've been wholly unsuccessful in getting back into that deal. They haven't even been able to get into some kind of interim deal. You remember when Joe Biden came into office, abandoned this pressure. He said, you know, my goal is to use diplomacy, smart diplomacy, not the pressure of my predecessor. And uh, we're going to do a longer, stronger and broader deal in recognizing that the 2015 nuclear deal was fatally flawed. Right. It had these sunset clauses under which Iran's nuclear program would expand rapidly over a number of years and legally. So Iran would emerge with an industrial sized nuclear enrichment capability near zero nuclear breakout a trillion dollars in, in sanctions relief and would be a much more dangerous and powerful enemy with a nuclear program that by 2030 uh, would be able to develop multiple nuclear weapons and we wouldn't be able to stop it. What's happened is Joe Biden has given all that sanctions relief and gotten no deal, ne never mind not a longer, stronger and broader deal, never mind a shorter and narrower deal, never mind a return back to the fatally flawed 2015 deal. He's gotten no deal in exchange for all these concessions. And today, Iran, again, is on the cusp of a nuclear weapon. They're enriching at 60%, which is a stone's throw away from weapons-grade uranium. They've installed thousands of advanced centrifuges. They've started constructing a new enrichment facility in the Tanz, 100 meters underground, John, buried in concrete, maybe impervious not only to Israeli bombs, but maybe even American bombs. And so the Supreme Leader, over three years under Biden's maximum deference strategy or maximum concession strategy, has gotten everything he wants in terms of nuclear expansion, and he's gotten billions of dollars in economic relief. So it's been a failed strategy, fatally flawed, and we're seeing the uh, consequences of it play out today in the Middle East. Obviously, incredibly frustrating. Let's talk about then, you know, the money that's flowed to the regime has obviously flowed onward to the proxies like Hamas and Hezbollah and the Shiite militias and the Houthis. What about the military component of this, right? I mean, we are now in a position, the United States is in a position where we're obviously have to make some tough choices about striking some of these proxies, maybe even the regime itself. How do you see that playing out? Well, again, I mean, let's return back to the mind of the mullah, right? Iran's supreme leader. He, he's had a longstanding proxy strategy, which has been implemented by the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Quds Force. And it's basically to fight the United States, Israel, and our allies to the last Palestinian, Yemeni, um, Lebanese, Syrian, Iraqi, Pakistani. And uh, he's executed on that strategy 
pretty successfully. Obviously, October 7th was uh, the height of that success. We have been playing, we, the United States, especially under uh, Joe Biden, have been playing tit for tat in this proxy strategy. Every so often we wake up after our troops are struck or another U.S. Navy warship uh, is, there's a narrow miss or they attack international ships. And we respond by, by trying to hammer the proxies. But that's exactly what Khamenei wants, right? That's exactly the strategy he wants. He's created this strategy, a proxy strategy to have, quote, plausible niability. And we've seen since the killing of the three U.S. troops uh, just a few days ago, the administration is falling all over itself to try to figure out if, quote, Iran is involved. It's the same kind of silly discussion we had after October 7th. Is Iran involved? Well, of course, Iran's involved. That's exactly the point of their proxy strategy. Use proxies. Don't commit Iranian uh, men, men and weapons directly. Don't run the risk that the United States will use its overwhelming military power against Iran directly and use this for plausible niability. The answer to that is stop playing tit for tat with the proxies and hit the IRGC directly, whether that's inside Iran, in the Gulf, or in, uh, in Syria, Iraq, Yemen, or Lebanon. We have to inflict massive pain on the Islamic Republic directly in order to reestablish the deterrence that has been so badly eroded in the past three years. Well, last question for you here, and I think this really builds on, on your, your last answer, and that is, you know, apart from military responses, which I think are long overdue, there is another strategy that the U.S. can deploy, and that is what you describe as maximum support to the Iranian people. What does that mean exactly? Well, first, John, let, you know, let's understand what's going on in Iran. I mean, since 2009, there have been massive protests inside Iran. Uh, the 2009 Green Revolution, Khamenei described those protests as bringing the regime to, quote, an edge of a cliff. And then between 2017 and 2024, there have been protests really every single day. FDD has a protest tracker. We track this uh, for a period of time. The Woman Life Freedom protests were getting a lot of media attention. Despite the fact the protests continue, that story has disappeared down the memory hole. Iranians are on the streets braving this regime, protesting, uh, are being killed, tortured, imprisoned. Iranian women are being raped. I mean, what Iran and Hamas did to Israeli women was done before for many years to Iranian women. So none of us should have been surprised by the brutality of the Islamic Republic and Hamas on October 7th. What we need to do is, is marry our maximum pressure campaign with the maximum support campaign. That means providing technology platforms uh, so that the Iranians can circumvent the restrictions that are being placed on their communications and internet access. I mean, it's creating labor funds, right? There are no independent unions in Iran. So when you go on strike, there's no way to feed your family. So we need to create a labor strike fund that gets money into the hands of Iranian protesters. We need to actually help uh, Iranians figure out where the security forces are going and declassify information, intelligence that we and the Israelis have and provide that to Iranian protesters so they know exactly where the protesters uh, can go safely. They know where the security services are moving and they know where the security services are living, right? So that they can actually seek retribution against those who are abusing them. There are many things we can do. We, we've got a whole report on maximum support on our website. We're working closely with partner organizations to expand that and, and help implement that. But ultimately, John, and I think it's a good place maybe to conclude is the ultimate answer to this is not economic sanctions. It's not military pressure. Those are part of the part of the toolkit. It is to help support the Iranian people millions of them who want to bring down the Islamic Republic and are risking their lives and the lives of their loved ones to do so. And it is absolute um, 
geopolitical malpractice, as well as moral insanity, not to help the Iranian people accomplish that objective. Couldn't have said it better. We'll leave it there. Thank you, Mark, for joining us today. Thanks, John. Appreciate you having me. Okay, here's what FDD is tracking today. My colleague Rich Goldberg spent more than two hours yesterday on the Hill delivering a scathing rebuke of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, or UNRWA. Now for the hard part, the follow-up. Let's hope our elected representatives are ready to do the right thing. My colleagues, FDD's uh, non-proliferation program, Anthony Ruggiero and Andrea Stricker, are digging into a new estimate on China's nuclear weapons stockpile. Apparently, the stockpile could grow to 1,500 nuclear warheads by 2035. In a policy brief for FTD, they outline specific ways Washington can stop this from happening. Our newest Iran research analyst, Jonathan Sayeh, has a new piece for FTD's Long War Journal about the Islamic State's suicide bombing on the fourth anniversary of Qasem Soleimani's death earlier this month. That attack was actually tied to the Taliban, but the regime seems to really want to avoid a confrontation with their Sunni extremist neighbors. And finally, my colleagues Brad Bowman and Sinan Gidi have weighed in on the Biden administration's approved air aircraft sales to Turkey and Greece. I don't think Turkey deserves our F-16s. I wish we didn't have to make this deal in order to convince Ankara to admit Sweden into NATO, but I'm glad we're selling the far more superior F-35s to Greece. Here's hoping that with superior firepower, our Greek allies can help provide greater stability on NATO's southeastern flank. Okay, that's it for today's show. Read our expert analysis on our website, fdd.org. Read our quick takes on X at FTD and support our work with a tax-deductible donation at ftd.org invest. Thanks for joining us today. I'll see you bright and early on, uh, on Friday for another episode of the FTD Morning Brief. My special guest will be Congressman Mike Waltz. Always fun to talk to him. So tune in. Until then, I'm Jonathan Shanzer, signing off for FTD.